Welcome to At the Point of a Knife. I'm your host, Eric Navaretti. Each episode, I'll sit down with the writers, producers, directors behind the modern era of horror and explore their inspirations, setbacks, and what it really takes to make your favorite films. Today, I'm interviewing writer, director, producer, Jackson Stewart. His debut film, Beyond the Gates comes out this month in a limited theatrical release. You can also find it streaming online or on video on demand. It has been making waves in the press as a crowd favorite at festivals this year, grabbing an audience award at the 2016 LA Film Festival. Now, everyone gets to enjoy this horror comedy, 80s throwback about a cursed VHS board game. Here's part of the trailer. Hey, what if he's okay? What do you mean? I mean, not dead. It's been seven months. If he's out there, it's not our problem anymore. Do you have Dad's keys to the office? What do you think's back there? Guess we'll find out. Welcome, curious viewers. Obtaining the four keys allows passage beyond the gates. Only there can your father's soul be saved. Where did you say you found this again? Maybe you need to take a break from this for a while. I'm not going to stop until we find Dad. And I suggest you play the game. Where the hell did this come from? Find your father. Take the final key. And become one with your new reality. Today, I have... Jackson Stewart here. He is the director of Beyond the Gates, which is premiering this month on the 9th. How you doing? Next month. Oh, I guess when it airs, that'll be the 9th. Yeah, so. <laughs> we do that one more time. No, 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 it's fine. I thought it was funny. <laughs> I kind of liked it. Let's hop into it. I guess I just want to know a little bit more about you. What is your background? What is your, how did you get started in filmmaking in general? It's, it was sort of a circuitous path, but I mean, basically I had been writing for a very long time and initially I was more interested in writing novels and that type of thing. And, uh, you know, I, I started when I was 14 and then had done it pretty much every day up till, you know, I was in my early twenties, I guess. And at a certain point I met, um, Paul Solid, who was a, a director, he did this movie called Grace that went to Sundance that Adam Green mm -hmm. produced and um, did pretty well. But basically, uh, I met him. He said, hey, it seems like you're way more into movies than you are uh, writing books. Why don't you give that a crack? And then I made a, you know, I started writing scripts, took some classes. And within a year of that, I had my first writing gig. And then I thought I was like, wow, this is really easy. And then basically didn't have any work after that for another five years or so. But <laughs> it was, it was just a very kind of like twisty, uh, turny path. But, you know, at a certain point I just, um, yeah, I sold a, a story to Supernatural when I was working on that show as an assistant. And then I, I'd written some, something for the sci-fi channel and, uh, a handful of other odd freelance projects. And eventually I decided to take a crack at directing, did, you know, a bunch of shorts. And then three years later, I have a feature and that was, that's kind of it. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, kind of 
trials and tribulations in between there where, you know, I had to like go and put the financing together for this movie, which, uh, was difficult. And, you know, there was a lot of other things I had that came very close to happening that didn't. And, you know, it, it was just, there's a, a whole kind of dance you have to do with this stuff and in order to get anything made and then, you know, eventually something will, but it's, uh, it's, it's definitely an odd path to go down. What do you think it was about this project that, that got like that financing in place? What called out to people? It was a combination of things. I mean, mainly, you know, the thing that attracted me to it was that it was Steve Scarlatta, my co-writer, you know, we, we met and he said, I've always wanted to do a movie about a VCR board game that leads to another dimension. And as soon as I heard that, I thought that was... I was like, that idea is brilliant. I was like, we have to do that. And I felt like it would be the type of thing that would appeal to me and, you know, like 20 other people and no one else. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it ended up being, he was one of the producers of Jodorowsky's Dune. And so there was a lot of heat around that movie at the time. It was on the Oscar shortlist. And so I was able to approach a bunch of different wealthy people and basically say, hey, I have this much money for this project. We need this much more. Will you come in for this amount? And pretty much all of them said yes. And it was, you know, I mean, it was wildly varying amounts between each of them. But, uh, you know, it, it became a lot more doable just because there was so much sort of clout around that movie at the time. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's just weird though, because it's like, you have to, you have to call these people and convince them you're going to make them their money back and a profit. And if you can't do that, they're going to immediately smell it. And there's kind of nothing you can do about it. So, I mean, it, it, you sort of need to have enough confidence in your project. It's sort of my rule of thumb. It's like, if I'm not so into it to the point where I'd like put my own money in, then it's probably not worth doing. You've heard this idea from Steven, right? Yes. You think that this is a great idea, a VHS that opens a gateway to another place. Yeah. Well, it, the other thing too was it was a, about a VCR board game and there right. was such like a level of specificity about that that I've not, I hadn't seen anyone else do and it just, it was such like a no brainer idea. I mean, my sort of gaming background, I, I, to be perfectly honest, didn't really play a lot of those games when I was growing up. I, you know, once we started writing this, I researched them very thoroughly and found everything I could and, you know, played like the Nightmare series and the Robocop VCR game and a bunch of stuff. But I was more from like, you know, the Nintendo entertainment system type of stuff. Like that was more appealing to me. Castlevania 2, Simon's Quest was another one <laughs> where I, I, I'm not sure what it is about that game. I think it was one of the first horror games I've ever played, but there's something about like the hints were just so confusing, which I actually used a lot of that in Beyond the Gates where I wanted her hints to be kind of reflective of that the townspeople's hints in Castlevania too, where mm, you yeah. listen to it and you kind of have like no clue what they're talking about, but in retrospect, you'd be able to figure it out. So just obscure enough where you don't immediately figure out what it's going to be, but it's also like you are able to figure it out too if you put enough thought into it. Setting this thing at a video store when physical media seems to be going away and all of that and just having grown up working in a video store and having it be like a connection to these 80s supernatural movies that I grew up loving. It just, it felt like a, the perfect fit for me. I couldn't get it out of my head once mm. he told me it. I mean, you said a minute ago, when he pitched the idea, it sounded 
like you and maybe 20 of your friends would be really into it. Yeah. At what point when, you know, you were working on the outline or you're working on the script, at what point did you realize like, no, this is actually something that an investor would find interesting and that would find a larger audience? Was there like something that just really hooked you? No, I mean, honestly, I, it, even even in, with investors, most of them never read the script, and it was um, it was really saying like I I would tell them you know it's about a VCR board game, and they'd be like, what is that? And they they'd have no clue. Mm-hmm. And I, at a certain point, I just started I, I pitched it to someone, and they're like, it sounds like it's just a horror Jumanji, and so I just call people and say. Like, it's like a horror version of Jumanji. <laughs> and then they'd be like, oh, okay, I get that. And uh-huh. then, you know, soon after that, they would sign over their money. So <laughs> it's uh, it, it was a very odd thing because it's just like there was no... No one really had any frame of reference for that. It, you know, it's gotten some, like, good buzz, which is nice. But I'm really surprised that there's this contingency of people out here that actually knew about those games and stuff. Because I was familiar with them. It just seemed like it wouldn't really appeal to anyone other than me and and like mm-hmm. Steve and a couple other people. So it's been it's been really nice to see it, you know, get some good buzz and some decent reviews so far. So when you're pitching to an investor, you're saying it's a horror Jumanji. I mean, what like what else do you show them then? Do you have like some some cover art, anything like that? No, or you just I, I mean, it, of your it's, proposal? Yeah, I mean it's just basically it's like a, a strength of the proposal. I mean a lot of, it, it depends who you are and like what you're comfortable doing because it, it's ultimately like you're asking someone to give you a very big chunk of money and in order to do that they you know a, you need to feel super confident about it, but B, um, they need to feel confident with you. And f- on my end, it just felt like I was able to, I had examples of other movies that had made, you know, their money back or like had made a profit that it was in kind of a similar space to and like how that was done. And I was able to like really illustrate that over the, you know, through conversation and, you know, give them specific examples of, of something that helped a lot. And that, that was kind of the more of what I, I did. You know, I think a lot of people will put together like a lookbook or something, which, it, you know, certainly helps. But it to me, it just comes down to like having a good pitch on it. And if you don't, it's it doesn't matter like how good your thing looks. It just seems like people are going to tune out. How did that writing process break down for the two of you? Did you both take a stab at a draft? How, how did that Yeah. Work? So, I mean, basically we, Steve had the initial idea of that. And then we came up with the idea of like setting it at a video store, having it be about these two brothers and their, their dad's gone missing. They, and they grew up, you know, working in his store. So, I mean, you know, it started divvying out pretty evenly early on in the process. There's a lot of elements we we both brought to it. You know, I came from like a, a background of, working in a video store when I was a lot younger. So I was able to bring that in. And then, you know, Steve had like a pretty rich knowledge of those games. And basically like the first draft of it, I would write 20 pages. Steve would write 20 pages. I'd write the next 20 and we would just trade off and then go back and rewrite each other's stuff. And Hmm. so, I mean, we were both constantly working on it at the exact same time. There was never a thing of like, handing it off to one another to, you know, like, I'm like, okay, well you just do your draft and I'll do my draft or whatever. It was just, it was a very symbiotic relationship with it. It it definitely seems clear that like somebody on this writing team had an experience in a video store because it's such a strong presence (laughs) in the movie. I'm like, somebody must have worked at one or either spent like their whole childhood renting movies from one. Yeah. I mean, it was sort of both. Like I, I, I mean, Steve definitely had, you know, frequented a bunch of them, but video store in the movie, 
we had been a customer at for eight years or so. Yeah, but, Eddie, Eddie Brown's, right? Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's also too, it's like when you're working in one of those stores, you're just exposed to so many weird things that you kind of don't get from the internet or Netflix or these other things because mm -hmm. you just end up happening upon these bizarro tapes where you're like, what is this? You know, cause like uh -huh. you're, you're filing stuff and then you just end up finding something completely random in like the, you know, the children's section or in like the drama section. And generally it, now it seems like stuff is curated through like blogs or whatever that we visit. And we don't really get the same experience of just going to the video store and saying like, Hey, I want something kind of like this. The clerk will have like a good idea of your taste and be able to guide you towards something. So working in that, I saw so much crazy stuff that I probably wouldn't have been able to otherwise, just because it's, it's when you're spending eight hours a day in there, you're just going to find some really insane stuff. Are, are there any titles or like any customer interactions that really stand out? <laughs> oh yes. Quite a few. Uh, the, the weirdest movie I think we found was called creating Rem Lazar, okay. which is a, it's like a children's, superhero movie. I mean, it's for like, like three-year-olds basically, but it is just bizarre and it's, it's completely ludicrous. One of the guys and the lead guy in it ended up being in the brothers McMullen way later on. He's like one of the leads in that, but it, it's like a musical and it's just absolutely terrible. But we were so into watching it cause it's, it's super funny. Uh -huh. I, I mean, kind of accidentally, like I don't think they intended it to be hysterical. There was like a Ninja Turtles like music video that went on for probably like 45 minutes and all the songs were like pizza related and well, they, course, they yeah. looked <laughs> and they, they looked terrible in it. I mean, it looks was it like live action or it was live action okay. and there it'll just be them at, you know, like a, a carousel or some random thing. And it just, it was, it was really poorly done, but it, mm -hmm. it ended up being really funny. And there's just, there's a ton of them we found that were just super weird. It's like, you would never be exposed to that in any other, like, you know, through blog writers. Um, there's some very angry and very insane people that would uh, roll into the video store. To me, like the VHS experience, you're, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's something that like the younger generation won't really know what it feels like to just wander through a store. Yeah. Not, not knowing exactly what title you, you were going to rent, but you know, just kind of getting just drowning in yeah. possibilities and yeah. then picking, you know, picking one that you recognize and then maybe picking two you've never heard of. Oh, for sure. Yeah. What do you think it is about the VHS as like an icon? that seems to call to people because I feel like there's a, a throwback movement going on to, to the eighties, yeah. you know, to that sensibility and, and also, you know, um, marketing movies as like a VHS collectible, like <laughs> people like that. What, what do you think calls to people about this? You know, I, I mean, to me, it, it seems like probably the most obvious answer is most of our favorite movies we watched on VHS for the first time. And so I, it's like, I don't think, if your favorite movie is Taxi Driver or something like that, chances are you probably didn't watch it on the big screen because we're all, you know, too young for that. And unless you caught it at like a midnight movie or something, mm. uh, you probably saw it on VHS for the first time. So I think it's like most of us just got exposed to our favorite films that way. And yeah, or I mean, maybe for DVD or something for younger people, but it's just, there's something about that. It's like you had to like go and rewind the tape. There was a really, there was like a whole ritual around it, like going and running a, a tape from the store where it's like, 
like, okay, you go in Friday night, you get this tape, you bring it back, you know, hopefully someone rewound it. And if they didn't, you have to like throw it in the VCR and rewind it and try not to watch any of it. And then there was a whole thing you would have to do around it. And it's like, you would bring it back to the store, put it in the Dropbox, and then it was just, sort of back where it came from. It's something that's like you kind of get lost with just streaming or, you know, buying stuff on VOD. I do feel like the relationship that people have with movies and with media right now has definitely changed because of, like you were just saying a moment ago, uh, streaming, video, yeah. and all of that. There, there really is something different about like holding the thing in your hand and it, realizing that as an object, you know, that people put time in mm -hmm. this thing. For sure. And it takes time for you even to watch it. Like you were yeah. saying, you had to, you had to rewind it. I had like, you know, one of those novelty VHS rewinders, yeah. just like a car, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it, it takes, it takes time to, you know, to put that thing on. Do you feel the same way? Do you feel like people's relationship with what they're watching has changed because it almost feels disposable now that it's, Oh, I mean, it's completely on. disposable because it's like, there's just, there's so much stuff out there that I think people don't, you know, it's like you can you can watch anything you want at this point, and there used to just be more of a there was more of a sense of I only have these two movies for the weekend or whatever. I think it just it put a lot more importance on each of those, and now it's like if you have a computer, you can pretty much gain access to anything you want, and so there's you know I mean hundreds of thousands and honestly probably millions of things to choose from youtube or really just an endless supply of of things to to view so you know i, I just i don't think there's quite the same there's not quite as much emphasis on certain movies as there used to be and i honestly i think a lot of stuff probably couldn't get made at this point for better and worse like i i think there's a ton of probably like really bad movies that would not be made now. And I, I, but also I think there's probably a lot of really good movies that also probably wouldn't be made now. So I mean, it, it's just, everything's in sort of like a weird state where it, maybe in 10 years, everything's just going to be on Netflix and yeah. that's going to be the only way to, you know, make like a $15 million movie or something. But I don't know. It's a, uh, it's a fascinating time. Can we talk a little bit about uh, your main cast? It seems like you've worked with a majority of them <laughs> at one point or another. Yeah. Um, what is it about these people that you that you enjoy so much that you want to keep bringing them back for more projects? I mean, it, it's one of these things. Like, if you just, uh, I, I mean, it's it's sort of like both in front of and behind the camera. Like Graham Skipper, Chase Williamson, Bria Grant, and um, you know Barbara Crampton and Jesse Merlin and. Um, you know Matt Mercer like all of them are just they're just wonderful people and they're all really good actors uh, but you know my editor Josh Ethier he's cut a bunch of shorts for me and my DP Brian Sells shot most of my stuff and it, it just you end up just being you're so on the same page as these people and they really get what you're trying to do that you don't need to like play catch up or worry about any variables with working with like a new person because a lot of times it's like you're sort of you take a bit of a gamble with any new person you work with and it may work out or it may not and they, they might have a different idea about something and you don't 
really know where their headspace is going to be at. So once you have your set team and they they do a good job for you, you really don't want to let them go and they become very valuable to you. So, I mean, with me, I, I feel like I'm essentially married to all of them. It's like I wouldn't really want to do... I mean, even, even if it's in, you know, like a smaller capacity or whatever, I'd want to bring pretty much all of them along for whatever I did, you know. You just... You really have, like, a sense of loyalty to these people if they... Once they've, like, gone through the whole process with you and I, I just like to work with them, you know? Can you tell us just a little bit about Barbara Crampton? I mean, she's such an icon. <laughs> like, I'm always so happy to see her in a new project. And I, I enjoyed her, like, come, her, like, resurgence that's been happening. Yeah, I, I am too. I, you know, I met her through Stuart Gordon. I was working as an intern for him for a little, for a brief period, but uh, she showed up to a performance of Reanimator the Musical, and we, yeah, for some reason, we both followed each other on Twitter. I don't really know why, but we started talking, and um, we just became friends very quickly, and then I asked her to do a short that I was uh, involved with, and she agreed agreed and then from that point we just stayed friends we had a good time working together and you know I, I mean it's it's a very surreal thing because she sort of like moved beyond like being you know like Barbara Crampton from Reanimator and from beyond and you know Castle Freak and all these other movies where it's basically like she's just you know my friend at this point like I talk to her pretty much every day so I mean she's very easy to work with and she's I will <laughs> but yeah she's a lot of fun and she she's also really smart too with story like she has a lot of strong mm -hmm. ideas that I think a lot of other people probably wouldn't have you know and she's she's just not shy about stuff like if she has an idea she'll let you know and sometimes it's right sometimes it's not but she's pretty invaluable and it's it's just it's sort of like a dream come true to be able to work with her after you know having grown up seeing her in all these movies so it's right. uh it's cool and i'm i'm really thrilled that she, you know people have kind of latched on to her in recent years and she's had this like renaissance uh it's it's super cool and it's it's very rare like i can't really think of too many other uh actresses that that's happened for like you said it seems really valuable that i mean a she she is a great actress mm -hmm. but to have somebody that that understands story and can give yeah. you that feedback and that you have a comfortable enough relationship where they can maybe feed you suggestions or point out things. Yeah, true. you know, I mean, it's it's always like you want to surround yourself with people who are who care about it and want to bring their own ideas into it. And those ideas don't always work, but it's better than someone just, you know, being like essentially a technician where you're just telling them exactly what to do. You gain a lot from other, from the people you surround yourself with. Have you ever worked on projects where maybe people at the top weren't as open to suggestions? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, How do you set up your projects so that people know that that's not not the case. Well, I mean, if you're doing an indie, it's generally like you're, everyone's kind of in it because they like it. You know, I don't think anyone's doing any of these movies to get super wealthy. You know, I mean, if, you, if you're doing something for like a network or whatever, that's a different story. But if you surround yourself with good people, you don't really need to worry about it. You don't have to have those conversations. So, so that's something that, that we've done before too, with crewing up and casting, trying to figure out, you know, the right sort of chemistry for everyone so that there's a positive experience. Do you have 
maybe like a litmus test that you put people through so that you know you're hiring somebody who's going to be good on set? How do you, how do you tell um, them? Sort of. I mean, it's generally like I'll, I'll, I'll ask them what they think of it and see where their headspace is. I mean, it just if it's with an actor, I'll ask them, you know, like where do they think their, their character came from? Or, you know, if it's auditioning someone, it's usually just giving them like a handful of different prompts that if they're able to roll with those and do them in a convincing way, that's a good sign. But a lot of it just has to do with their own ideas about the material because sometimes you can hand someone a script and people can interpret it in a dozen different ways and sometimes people get it and sometimes they don't. It doesn't mean they're they're dumb or whatever if they're not on board with it. It just it just means it's like sometimes the taste don't align and mm -hmm. that's that's kind of it, you know. It, it's certainly just seeing what other people's ideas are and if they align with mine. Can you talk a little bit about Stuart Gordon? Um, <laughs> sure. Did you, I mean, like, what did you learn from him? What, what did you take away from that? You know, he, he's just a really sharp guy and he puts a lot of thought into everything he does, but he's also very open to getting other people's opinions about it and then tweaking things accordingly. Like he's, he's one of the only people I've ever seen where, um, you know, I went and saw a couple of plays that he did in recent years and after the opening night or the preview night, he would come out and you know, have the audience sit there and ask everyone what their thoughts were on it and say like, hey, you know, what did you like? What didn't you like? What do you think needs work? Do you have suggestions? What was slow to you? You know, and have some really detailed questions to ask people. His way of incorporating all that stuff was really smart. And I, I really kind of took a lot out of that because it, it just, he was so, even though he, you know, worked on this these things for months. He was very open to other people's ideas about it and how to improve it and not, you know, coming at it from any kind of like ego standpoint. But he was also very willing to fight for the stuff that he believed in. And I really learned a lot from that because he just, he, he's such a smart guy, but he was still able to improve things from the kind of audience collective, I guess. So, you know, that was, that was valuable. And, you know, he just, he just had a very good, sense of story that I haven't seen in a lot of other directors or people I've worked with, which has really impressed me. So taking that cue, I guess, from Stuart, how do you know when you're separating your vision from maybe the ego? How do you know when people are giving you feedback and you should listen to it or you shouldn't? You end up getting kind of like common notes from people where it's, they, they'll probably have like a, a zillion different ways of executing it but generally it's like I'll show it to a group of directors or writers or a rough cut I'm I'm talking about and say like you know what's slow what do you what do you think works what doesn't and you end up getting a lot of notes but they'll you know, it's like they all sort of like figure out what the problem is and it's your job to kind of like, you know, work your way through the, the bushes and find what's what's really underneath that. Because a lot of times people be like, oh, well, this doesn't work. But really it's not because that doesn't work. It's because you didn't set up the thing that needs that to work. So there's a lot of stuff like that that you just find over the course of making the movie and then editing and doing all those things and you know you realize oh I need an opening with with like their dad or whatever because you don't really see him throughout the movie and don't get any sense of that you can't really predict until after you have your finished or not a finished version of the movie but a cut of the movie and you're able to go back and assess it like the shirt you're wearing is a really great example of that because you know I, I'm sure you're aware of this but Carpenter like went and shot it for a couple months 
put together a cut, decided it didn't work, and then realized like, oh, I need to do this, 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 and this in order to make it into probably like the greatest horror movie of the 80s. <laughs> uh, for the listeners, I'm wearing my favorite horror movie as a shirt. It's Carpenter's The Thing. So looking at some of your previous work, I see that like a lot of your shorts and some of your writing credits were more like sci-fi or a little <laughs> bit more comedy. Yeah. But it didn't seem like you were explicitly doing a lot of horror. So I'm, I'm wondering, why did you choose to do this genre as your debut? You know, I mean, it, it's, most of that stuff sort of has horror elements. Like if, um, I mean, Supernatural is, like, you know, an outright horror show. It's, you know, it was really like my gateway into everything. And so a lot of this, like the more comedic stuff, like Sex Boss is, you know, like the horror of like working under, you know, a, a boss who's sexually harassing you and all this stuff. And I mean, there's, there's <laughs> some stuff out of it that is like a shot, like a horror movie. So it, it was always sort of there and you know depending on the project it's it has a lot to just do with the story rather than I mean for me I'm like I just want to work on stuff that's exciting to me and this project was really exciting rather than being like I'm only going to do horror movies for the rest of my life I don't you know I mean that would be totally cool if that did happen but it's generally it's like you just have a story you're excited about and then that kind of dictates what you're doing. So in regards to Beyond the Gates, writing it, you, you mentioned that you showed it to some people and they gave you notes. So the, the story will change from pre-production through the final product. How did you manage with those rewrites and was that difficult letting go of your original concepts for it or do you feel like it just made it better overall? No, I mean, it, it, it's always, you're always improving the thing. It's basically like you start with Something where it's like, it's the first draft of it is usually like, it's kind of there, but it's, you know, a very diminished version of, of what you initially had in your head and what it could be. And going through and refining it ends up turning it into a better thing. Of course, there's, there's a point where if you're, if you do that too much, you can get diminishing returns, but it's, it's kind of a combination of just working on it as hard as you can. And then being able to have a little bit of objectivity about it and seeing what, what works and what doesn't. And from that point, you're, you're able to go in with confidence and make the, the movie. It, it's an odd process. Cause a lot of times, like we're all in such a rush to get something made that I think people can kind of give short change to the script, which uh, is definitely unfortunate. But I mean, for me, it was just a matter of putting in a set number of hours each day and just attacking it as best I could. And I mean, honestly, we were still, I was still like writing a draft of it, even through shooting, you know, for like scenes we hadn't done and, you know, tweaking things here and there where something would happen on set and I'd be like, oh, well, maybe we can do this. And honestly, sometimes some of the actors would just have a really brilliant idea where I, I would just say like, let's just use that while we're in the middle of a scene. So it's a mixture of, of things. Were there any standouts from, like you said, like the actors where <laughs> you're like, that's so good. We have to use it. Yeah, well, Chase had my favorite line in the movie, which I, I wish I could take credit for, but I can't. There's a bit where in the video, they're in the video store early on and their childhood friend comes in and they have this conversation about this horrible action movie that he was obsessed with. And then Graham says something like he's he's like it's a terrible movie and then Chase said he's a terrible cop. And <laughs> it was, he said that and I was like, we're doing that every take, and that is 100% ending up in the movie. He was so spot on and brilliant about that. But, uh, you know, I mean, you, you end up getting a lot of good stuff from people because they really put 
if they're a good actor, they put a lot of thought into their character and kind of, in some weird sense, it's like they might actually know it better than you because mm -hmm. they spend so much time focusing on this one facet of it. And granted, like you have a sense of like when they're way off and when they're not, but if you cast it right and they're smart and they do their homework, they're able to really bring a lot to the table that you probably can't. It's interesting. I mean, the whole thing is basically just like putting together a baseball team and, you know, finding mm. where people have strengths in certain positions and where they don't. And, you know, it's, it, it's a, a very complicated deal, but it's ultimately very rewarding if you're able to, you know, even get like 20% of what you want out of it. So there are a lot of call-outs to voodoo and cultism and beyond yes. And I'm just wondering, is that something that you're specifically interested in or was that just something for the story that kind of naturally No, happened? I mean, it was one of these things like it felt in staying within the constraints of those 80s movies that I grew up loving, even though the movies, you know, obviously not set in the 80s. Right. It was just like I, I wanted to keep it kind of using the same rule book as much as possible that those movies yeah. I grew up loving did, you know, as far as like cinematography and the writing and all these other things. And it seemed like voodoo was a very common trope in a lot of those movies. Like Child's Play is a, r a really good example of that where he essentially uses voodoo to become Chucky. And it just, it seemed like it was a cool idea and people hadn't really done it in a very long time. And it, it just, it felt right for for the story. Yeah, that, that was something that I, I definitely noticed and I appreciated about uh, Beyond the Gates was that it definitely, even though yes, it's set in the present, it it obviously just from the way it looks, the way it, it's shot and composed and all that, but also the sort of rules that it brings into play, it feels very classic. It feels very much of the VHS era. So yeah. I think, at least to me, that, that reads pretty clear. Oh, good. Well, thank you. In addition to it being like a callback to the 80s, like it definitely felt modern at the same time. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that definitely was, you know, we wanted to shoot that stuff with the constraints of those movies, but like give it a slightly more modern look. I mean, not, we wanted to like always have it be tipping more toward the eighties than we would, you know, any kind of like modern aesthetics. I mean, we're not using Steadicam or like really elaborate crane shots. We're pretty much on a dolly through the entirety of the movie. Mm -hmm. And that certainly helps. What are you enjoying most about the horror scene right now? You know, I think it's really interesting to just see a lot of people's, or different directors that I admire and how they're, they have like a sense of authorship over whatever their movies are. Cause there's, there's a ton of them that I, I've seen them like handle specific subject matter. I'm like only Dave Bruckner would do that. Who he's one of the directors of Southbound and VHS and the signal. And he's just a super talented guy, but he has such a specific point of view and sense of authorship over his movies that he does it in a way that I haven't like that no one else would be able to. And it's very authentic to him. And there's a lot of these other indie horror guys I've seen that, that do their own thing with whatever their project is. And I, I think it's super cool that we're kind of able to, to do that. Alistair Legrand is someone I think who's done some really interesting stuff. He has a movie called Clinical that's coming out really soon. And it's, I mean, it's basically like a 90s sort of thriller with like a really hard, hard edge, kind of like single white female or hand that rocks the cradle. And it's just, hmm. it's just done super well. And I, th I think it comes out on Netflix and 
uh, January, but it's a, it's a really good movie and it's very true to him and how he grew up and his background. And even though it's, you know, a story about like a 40 something year old, uh, female psychiatrist, you very much feel his authorship over it. And I mean, for me, like the stuff I really respond to is like, you can tell a specific director made it rather than there's a lot of more generic stuff out there. And especially like over the past 10 years that got made where it didn't feel like there was any voice behind any of it. Mm -hmm. And that's always like a, a big deal breaker for me. Yeah. I think personally, I've noticed over the past, maybe like five years that there's been a larger volume of output right, yeah. going on where movies are being made. And I'm like, I know that filmmaker, I know that director now, yeah. you know, um, like you were saying, like in the aughts, there are just so many horror movies that didn't have any real voice behind them. Yeah, and they, you just got the sense like they were making a horror movie to get a buck. Like you know? it was from a factory or something. Yeah, like totally. That. It's like these guys didn't have any real passion for it or whatever. And, and that stuff would translate because we'd all get suckered into renting it because you're like, oh, Robert England's in it or, you know, um, Gunnar Hansen or whoever. And then you end up watching his movies and you're like, geez, this is like just some fifth-rate knockoff of whatever popular horror movie had been out at the moment. And, you know, that stuff just dates very quickly. And I also just, I don't think anyone ever has any sense to rewatch any of it, which is another big crime, I think. Mm -hmm. if, like, if you make a movie and no one ever wants to see it again, that's a problem. Yeah. And I mean, unless you make like irreversible or something, then obviously like you've, you've done your job, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think with horror, it's like you, it should be the type of thing you want to watch it again and again, mm -hmm. or at least I do yeah, like the, the movies I grew up loving. I've, you know, watched um teen times and mm -hmm. it's, uh, you always kind of find something new in them. I mean, I, I've noticed over the past few years, the, the movies that are coming out that I think are really grabbing people and really speaking to them are, um, they almost feel kind of in the same space that, that your movie's in, where a lot of them feel like a throwback to an older style of making movies. Like mm -hmm. there's, it follows, which yeah, looks like it was sure. shot like a Carpenter movie. <laughs> um, even like the VHS people, you know, throwing back yeah. to the anthology format, mm -hmm. shooting on camcorders too. You, you've got this film that's like a love letter to the VHS, like, rental scene and all that. What, what do you think it means that so many people are turning to this point in filmmaking and using that to make something new? I, I mean, that's, it, it's such a sort of complicated answer because I'm, I'm still very surprised that there's any kind of eighties resurgence like there is now. It just, it was, it, for me, it was something I was very much into and I just didn't think, I mean, I remember trying to like get people to watch these movies, like you know, Fright Night or The Gate or whatever, or Blood Rage or The Mutilator and just, you know, all these absurd horror movies in the early 2000s. And people are just like, oh my God, we have to watch another thing from the 80s. And people just hated it. You know, it's like they just hmm. pretty much wanted to only watch newer stuff or, you know, what, whatever they were into. And, um, so now that there's there's been this renaissance with it, I think it's really cool. And I also just, I think some of it has to do with, because of that point in time where most of us had grown up and then found a lot of our favorite movies from that, that era. Yeah, it's like it's, we're sort of trying to recreate it in a sense. Um, I think that's like the deeper underlying thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, you know, I, I can't, a hundred percent put my finger on it. It's just everything kind of like moves in cycles. So let's say you're trying to get somebody into that era. 
sounds like you're you're pretty passionate about it. What is like your top five? These are the ones you got to watch. Then it always sort of like depends on what the person's tastes are because if they if they just say like oh I want to watch you know a crazy slasher movie like I could give them some very obscure slasher movies that they could go off of. But I mean for me like a lot of the my go tos are The Gate. I think that's an amazing movie. Um, Poltergeist is is really cool. Uh, Fright Night's great. Um, I'm a big fan of Nightmare on Elm Street 4, even though a lot of people hate that. I just did a screening of 4 for Halloween last month. Uh, I mean, there, there's some nostalgic reasons because that was the first Nightmare movie I saw, and it was also just, it was such a, I think it's like probably, except for maybe part 3, I think it's even, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of shit for this, but I think it's like the best directed out of any of the the movies and mm. just and not like from a sense of it's the strongest movie i just think there's stuff in there that's pretty mind-blowing like when he goes you, you go through the vortex of souls at the end yeah. where the camera's just like flipping over and you know there are all these arms and stuff coming out of the wall and there's yeah. that that chest of souls where everyone's coming out of freddy you're just like this is insane mm-hmm. like the idea Coming up with that and visualizing that as well as he did, I think is in, very impressive. And I, I think a lot of people kind of slam that movie because they don't like it as much as Dream Warriors. And it, I mean, it's a little bit of a step down on a script level, mm-hmm. but not so much to the point that I think it's a bad movie. It's still pretty damn good, though. Yeah, absolutely. I really like it. Yeah. And I think I just feel like that's that's a really strong entry. But I, I mean, as far as the other movies that I, I really dig, you know. Um, there's an anthology called Nightmares that I think is really cool, and there's kind of something for everyone in that. And just as another off-the-cuff one, I love Halloween too. A bunch of people hate that movie for some reason. I don't know why. There's sort of like it's sort of become popular to hate it in recent years, but that I think that movie no is sense so cool, and it's yeah. I love the setting. I think it it has so much good Halloween stuff in it. Yeah. And I mean, not the the movie, but like the iconography is is great. It has an amazing ending, and it's just mm. I think that movie's really scary in a way. A lot of people don't give it credit for it just because it's a follow up to an undeniable classic. But mm. I really dig that one. So I mean, you know, stuff like like that I think would be a, a pretty good sense of what I'm into. What do you like to watch, or or what do you turn to when you need to be inspired? I mean, it doesn't even have to be <laughs> horror, but I mean, like, what do you? Um, it's usually on your plate. Yeah, I mean, there's a handful of stuff I've always sort of, like, found myself coming back to. Like, Taxi Drivers, uh, I probably watch that once a year. Um, Buffalo 66 is is one I've I've watched a a zillion times. Uh, Star 80, which is this Bob Fosse movie from the 80s with, Mm -hmm. with Eric Roberts, where he's... Eric Roberts is fucking incredible in that movie. I mean, it's okay. it, like he he should have won an Oscar for it, but it's um it's a really really intense scary movie, and it, it's based on a true story. You know, I mean, a lot of times I'll just read, and you know, kind of yeah, I have like a mixture of stuff I do. I'll play older games, watch movies that I. I grew up digging, but I mean, it's, there's never really a question of inspiration, sort of like whatever the project is, like what the themes of that are and what movies line up with it. That's kind of my way of, of seeking stuff out to be inspired by where it's something more, if it's like a consumerism piece, you know, you go to like the stuff or, you know, a movie like that and you're able to find a lot in there without 
I mean, hopefully you don't get into a, a space where you're just lifting things directly from the movie, but usually when you go back and look at it, it, ins it will hopefully inspire some of your own ideas, and and uh, that goes a long way. I mean, going back more to like the writing part of what you do, do you have a strategy where you've got writer's block and you need to just figure out like what to do next? Mm, no, I mean, it's generally like a thing of, I'm always sort of forcing myself to write no matter what, even if I, I have something I'm not super into. It's more just about like putting in a set amount of time because generally if like you get past, you know, the 30 minute mark of like smacking your head against the wall, eventually be like, okay, you kind of get in the groove of something. I don't know. I mean, there's definitely been points where I worked on stuff that I wasn't crazy about. And then over time, I've maybe like ditched those projects and start working on something new. But you just kind of, it's, it's almost like exercising where you kind of just need to be in the habit of doing it regularly in order to stay healthy. Because if, if I'm not doing it, frequently it just atrophies and you know you're you're in a worse position than when you started mm -hmm. so does that mean you're, you're writing something right now yeah for sure i, I mean I, I, I write every single day wow. like and have been for well over a decade at this point but um yeah i'm, I'm working on a, a couple new scripts and it's just it's they sort of go back and forth depending on what's moving and what isn't so it's uh that's all, that's always kind of like a tricky balancing act, but yeah, I'm, I'm working on a handful of new things. Is there a piece of advice you wish somebody would have given you when you were first starting off? You know, I mean, the big one I give to people is that if you if you move to Los Angeles, I would just say get any job you can take, like whether that's at Starbucks or you know, like a bookstore or whatever, and then get an internship at a production company you like because chances are you're probably gonna work there for about a month or two months or maybe three months, and then they're gonna give you a job at that place. And so that's one thing I really wish I'd done when I first moved here, because instead I was like, no, I need to just get a job in like some facet of the, the film industry, and then I ended up working in post-production for a long time. I ended up just like working at like a VFX house and a handful of other things, but it was just one of those bits of advice I didn't really get until I kind of figured it out on my own, because I would see other people do do that and then they'd have these jobs at companies and then those places would end up you know optioning scripts from them or that type of thing so i would say if you if you do something do that it really goes a long way and then other than that i would just say the basic stuff that everyone else does which is just write as much as you can and you know try to be making stuff on a regular basis and eventually you'll you'll get good at it you know it's it's going to be a lot of trial and error but you know at some point people are going to read it and be like yeah this is actually pretty good and versus like oh, you know i had a bunch of problems with this and that type of thing uh what scares you the most <laughs> um I don't know. Honestly, like people's behavior really freaks me out uh, now, like especially uh, in in light of the election. Honestly, on both sides, I've found people being very appalling in their own unique ways, which uh, I'm like, wow, this is very weirdly hypocritical. That sucks. And I think is kind of alarming, but um, people being in my house is a big one. Like when you're waking up in the middle of the night and just having someone being in your room. I think there's nothing. I cannot think of there being anything scarier than that. I don't know where that came from, but that's been in my head since I was very young. Uh. And it is, it is really, I've never been able to shake that. That's probably like the biggest one. People getting in into your space and you not knowing about it. There's something very frightening about that. December 9th, 
is the limited premiere of uh-huh. Beyond the Gates. Um, what do you have planned to promote it, and what are you looking forward to the most? Well, I mean, it's it's coming out on VOD on that that day too. So I mean, pretty much everyone that'll has access to a you know VOD or iTunes or Amazon or whatever will be able to check it out at that point, which is good. But it's playing at the IFC Center in New York, and it is playing at the Arena in Los Angeles. It's playing at the Draft House in San Francisco. Barbara will be there to do a Q&A. I'll be in LA to do a, a Q&A probably that entire weekend um, for Beyond the Gates. And I think pretty much all the cast will be there, like Graham, Chase, Bria, and probably a handful of the other people. Oh, and then I should mention too, we have a Blu-ray coming out through Scream Factory in April, I think, although I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but who cares? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, lo- I, love, I love their work. I think they do like some of the best packaging out there. Their oh, artwork. yeah, they're awesome. Artwork is killer. Huh? Yeah, well, actually, there's a funny story about that, too. My friend I used to work with at a video store up in Oregon is now producing my Blu-ray for this movie because he's been working with Scream Factory for the past, you know, five years or so, uh, which that's really cool that like everything sort of come full circle for us so mm-hmm. uh that's that's rad i mean the as far as the promotional stuff leading in, up to it i'm doing a bunch of interviews and podcasts we have um we have like a secret thing we shot that should be airing next week on nerdist that has alex esso from starry eyes samantha robinson from love witch and um Alina von Stroheim in uh, from uh, Found Footage 3D, which is this really cool genre movie I saw on the festival circuit this past year. And Barbara Crampton is back in it, playing her character from Beyond the Gates, which uh, <laughs> that like that's that's it's short, but I think it'll be really fun, and people okay. that have seen the movie will get a kick out of it, and hopefully people that haven't seen the movie will get a kick out of it. What's your ideal project that you'd like to be on? Is it, it doesn't have to be a horror franchise, but what, what would you like to be doing? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, I think my dream project would either be taking a crack at Phantasm and basically doing like, it's sort of like a side universe type of thing. Hmm. I would, I'd love to do that. That's like my absolute dream project. Um, Cause like I wouldn't want to negate anything that Don Coscarelli has done, but I think there's a way to, because that whole series is about, you know, different universes and what have you. I think there's something really interesting there. Um, that, and then probably like Streets of Rage, the Sega Genesis game. happened yet <laughs> I, I i i'm trying to get some meetings on it because that's that one i think would just be it i would kill to do that i, I would like cut off one of my pinkies to do that maybe yeah I, I think those are like the two big ones and you know i mean there's like a handful of other i honestly think resident evil is due for a, a serious like horror reboot where it's you know kind of like out of the action element like someone someone really needs to just go and make that like a 
a George Romero movie. Yeah. Which is so weird that George Romero was going to make it and then wasn't able to. It's just very bizarre. Make it an actual survival horror. Yeah, exactly. First installments in the series. I mean, the thing should just be aliens set in the Night of the Living Dead universe. And, like, you, that's your... (laughs) That's... I cracked it. I think that's the pitch right there. That's what you got to tell people. It's like, just whoever pitches on that, just please go and say that to, to them, and you have your movie there. You know what that noise means. It's time for the lightning round. There are no wrong answers. All right. Just fast <laughs> answers. Okay. So, first thing that comes to your mind, favorite starship captain? Uh, William Shatner. You're about to drop your first hot mixtape. What's it called? Bust a move to. <laughs> How often do you receive tweets or messages from people who think you're a Hannah Montana character? <laughs> uh, su- surprisingly, never. I'm kind of disappointed about that. <laughs> what would you rather fight? 1,000 spider-sized clowns or one clown-sized spider? Probably 1,000 spider-sized clowns. <laughs> All right, what's the last drink you have before the apocalypse? Uh, black coffee. All right, you're going out for the night. What do you wear? A bow tie or an ascot? God, um... You have to probably, choose Probably one. an ascot, just because Fred from Scooby-Doo is cooler than anyone who's ever worn a bow tie. <laughs> All right, that's pretty good. I'd like to thank you, Jackson, for coming in. Yeah, uh, I really appreciate me. your time. Anytime. If people want more details about you, about Beyond the Gates, where should they go? Uh, the thing, I, I, I mean, people can follow me on Twitter, but I'm I'm not terribly interesting on there. My handle is at Boss Jacko. Uh, the one I suggest they follow is at Beyond the Gates underscore Steve Scarlatta runs that. That's that's our movie. Twitter, but basically he digs up a bunch of old VCR and VHS ads and then puts them up on there. And he's found some just awesome stuff on there that I'm, mm. I'm, I'm just endlessly impressed by him and is able to kind of like excavate through our culture to find this, these like unique things I'd never seen before. So I highly recommend following that. That's a really cool Twitter account, probably just those. And then we have like a bunch of beyond the gates stuff. There's like a Facebook page and Instagram and those are kind of the main ones. So any, any of those, I would say, check them out. Thanks again. Thank you. That was Jackson Stewart. Be sure to give your support to indie horror by checking out his movie beyond the gates. And why not catch a screening if it's playing in your town? Next episode, I'll be sitting down with actor, writer, and one of my personal favorite performers of the past 10 years, A.J. Bowen. He's been in too many great films to name, but some of his most popular are The Signal, House of the Devil, You're Next, and A Horrible Way to Die. Don't miss it. At the Point of a Knife was created and hosted by me, Eric Navaretti, and produced by Renee Amador. At the Point of a Knife is an Automaton Creative production. For more of our work, visit our new site, automatoncreative.com. Logo and title designed by Jonathan B. Perez. For more of his work, check out jonathanbperez.com. Be sure to follow the show on Facebook and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. And help more people find the show by leaving us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>